Hello and welcome back to QC Uncut, your only source for uncut, unedited, uncensored conversation with local newsmakers here in the Quad Cities. We are nearing 100 shows and I want to thank you all for listening in to QC Uncut over the last couple of years. I'm Sean Leary, your host, and as always, uh, we have a very interesting guest today. It's Eric Perrier. He, he is a local attorney, gun rights advocate, um, really interesting dude. Uh, Cool cat. Um, he's a fan of aviation, martial arts, uh, firearms, and a, a great dad. And, of course, also a lawyer. So it should be an interesting conversation. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit about uh, an open carry rally he's got going on this weekend and some of the other stuff that uh, Eric is involved in. But um, I have a feeling this is going to be a, an awesome show. Eric, thanks so much for being a guest. Oh, thank you for having me on. So let's get started a little bit about, um, tell me a little bit about your origin story. Uh, where did you grow up? Um, what are some of the things that sort of informed you as a person and, you know, impacted you and put you on the path that you're on right now? Well, I uh, grew up in the Chicago area, mm-hmm. uh, moved back into the city for college and law school, and came out to the Quad Cities after law school. That was my uh, my first job, and also an internship I had during law school on the Arsenal. Where did where did you go? Where did you grow up in Chicago? I grew up in Chicago. Uh, so born in the South Side in Hyde Park. Sure. Grew up in some of the South Suburbs. Yeah. Two of them actually. Yeah, from Joliet uh, originally. Oh, nice! It is a it is a small world. Yeah, yeah. When I moved back into uh, to Chicago, I lived uh, first in Lincoln Park, mm-hmm. then in West yeah. Loop, and then finally in Oak Park. Yeah, my sister lives in Lincoln Park. All my family's still up around Chicago, and my dad lives in New York. So, yeah, I'm well familiar with uh, Southwest Side and uh, the suburbs and everything around there in the city. So, very cool, very cool. So, you moved out here after you graduated, um, and uh, you know what made you decide in the Quad Cities? Well, I really like the area. I like the. I kind of like the, the feel of the area. I like the reduced traffic compared to Chicago, for sure. Now, what got you into what got you into the law? What made, was there anything growing up that like made you think like you know what I want to you know get into the law? I want to become a lawyer. You know, I, I can't say there's any one singular uh, moment that did. I've, I've always enjoyed debating and arguing. I've had uh, people say, oh, you should be a lawyer when I was a child. Mm-hmm. When I was uh, going to college, my bachelor's degree is in computer science. And so initially I thought that was kind of the career path I was going to head down. I had, uh, uh, as an undergraduate, I was involved in some computer science research projects out at Argonne National Laboratory. So I really thought I was going to be on that track of pursuing a career in, in computer science, perhaps get a PhD and do research. Mm-hmm. But in my senior year of, uh, of college, I realized, no, I, I don't think that's the course I want to go as much as I enjoy computer science, as much as I enjoy research. I think law is where I should head. And so that's uh, when it came time to decide if it was going to be law school or graduate school in computer science, I went with law school. Now, one thing I find fascinating about the correlation between computer science and law school is that ultimately they're both based upon patterns and being able to think abstractly to... um, I don't know whether manipulate is the right word, but in some ways it is. Navigate those patterns um, to come up with an advantageous result. Um, 
what uh, you know how did you see any correlation between um, you know your interest in computer science and your interest in the law and how the, those skill sets translated over oh yes there's there's definitely a connection there that same sort of logic and reasoning applies to both mm -hmm. the law is not nearly as precise as computers there's a lot more that's open to interpretation yeah. but there still is a, uh, a large component to it where there's overlap and I think that uh, you can see that even taking the LSAT the, uh, the admissions test for law school you can see that in the LSAT you can see it in everyday practice so there's a connection and that there's some, uh, some nice synergy there um, you are uh, like myself a very staunch advocate of the First Amendment and the Second Amendment and um, and you you see it in a very logical way which um, I uh, I agree with you on um, why don't you explain a little bit how you feel about um, you know First Amendment rights and Second Amendment rights from your perspective oh gladly I am, uh, I am quite a strong supporter of gun rights. I have been for well over a decade. Back when I was in law school was when I really started to appreciate gun rights the most. Part of it was because of what I was learning in, in law school, and part of it was uh, I was working part-time for a software company while I was in law school, the owner of which was a uh, very big supporter of gun rights, and just talking to him kind of intensified my support for gun rights. Mm -hmm. Uh, when it comes to the Second Amendment, I think it is just uh, something that every single American should be embracing. Whether you lean left or right, there's no reason for someone to turn away from or oppose gun rights. The ability to defend ourselves is just one of the most basic human rights that all of us have. And I think it is extremely foolish for a person to you know, turn away from that basic self-defense ability. It is just uh, it's mind-boggling, and that's especially true these days no matter where you sit politically being able to defend yourself and your family is a good thing choosing to go unarmed is just incredibly unwise it's not a morally superior position and I was arguing that on, on Facebook with someone yesterday where she was saying that she wanted to take the high road and not have a gun and I'm asking her do you think it's morally superior if some violent person were to attack you and you were not able to defend yourself and your children I don't see that as superior at all I see that as an unwise decision and frankly poor parenting mm -hmm. now let's go in, let's wade into some areas as always with any of these debates there are gray areas where we may agree we may disagree let's find out now usually um, I, I you know tend to take flack from people on both the right and the left in regard to my position in terms of the Second Amendment and um, with the left I tend to use a uh, an analogy of um, a table of your friends now let's uh, let's imagine that it's you and a table of three of your friends and the four of you are sitting there at this table and um, somebody puts a gun on the tape in the middle of the table now being of sound mind and being you know compassionate reasonable people um, the gun is not going to be used in a harmful fashion. The gun is merely a neutral that you place there on the table, and you may regard it with curiosity, or depending upon your experience with it, um, you may regard it with a certain you know sense of uh, seriousness that that others may not if they don't have that. But you're not going to go willy nilly and just shoot people or shoot each other or whatever because you're reasonable people. 
And therefore, it's kind of difficult to justify a complete ban or anything of that nature in regard to certain firearms. Um, now, say you subtract one of your friends from the group and you bring in somebody who you don't know. Now, wouldn't you want to make sure that that person is likewise going to be reasonable and of sound mind, and therefore they should have to undergo some sort of vetting process and undergo a thorough check upon their mental facilities and, life, and their background in order to make sure that you're going to allow them at that table? And I find that to be kind of, you know, in my opinion, the best analogy in regards to the entire gun rights issue. Now, if it were up to me, I would allow people to have whatever they wanted, but there would have to be a stringent vetting process, and also certain people would be banned from having guns if they had exhibited um, violent tendencies in the past, if they had mental health issues, if they had been you know, convicted of, of certain crimes in the past that were violent crimes and things of that nature, just you know, because I think that that's the reasonable path to take. But if you're a responsible individual um, within society, and have proven so, then you should be allowed that right. Um, ha having said that, what are your feelings in regard to that? Which ways and which do we agree? Which ways do we disagree? And why do you agree or disagree with what I just said? Well, I agree with your initial premise that if I'm sitting at a uh, table and I have friends around and there's a gun on the table, it's completely fine. Mm -hmm. I've certainly sat around many such tables with friends where we're all individually armed or we've gone shooting and now we are cleaning our guns. Uh, that's, there's nothing unusual about that. Just at my office right now, you know, we have we have many people working from home, but as I sit here right now speaking with you, I have one of my paralegals in, a, you know, two doors down in my office. She's sitting in her office. She has her pistol. I have my pistol. We have another employee who will be stopping in just briefly this afternoon because, again, we're doing the work from home thing in part. That employee has a pistol, and there's nothing unusual about that. There's no shootouts at the office. Uh, so <laughs> Not even if someone good. takes the last Danish or something, Eric, or there's no more coffee. <laughs> you know, we, we have, we have a few cookies, cupcakes, Danishes, and all of that at my office. People seem to bring in a lot of food. But uh, yeah, we have we have not had even one shootout when the box is empty by two p.m. Is there, is there a little calendar on the little calendar on the wall where you rip a thirteen days since a shootout, one hundred days since a shootout over a donut? Yeah. In the uh, in the about ten years we've been here, not a single round has been fired in our building. And good. you know, I actively encourage my employees to carry. I pay them a, a small bonus each month if they choose to carry. It's enough to buy them a new gun every year, basically. And so I want to encourage that sort of carry. And mm -hmm. some employees take me up on it. Some don't. That's their choice. I need to but, work for you, Eric. Do <laughs> <laughs> you need anybody to do public relations for you? <laughs> more employers don't do that. I mean, uh -huh. I think it's kind of a no-brainer. Obviously, if I'm trusting if I'm trusting people to handle client data to handle money, well, I don't think they're going to shoot me because if I thought they were going to shoot me, I would not employ them in the first place. There you go. But to, uh, to, to get back to your earlier point sure. about restrictions, I think that's where, where you and I, you know, ideologically will part ways. I don't want to see bad people with guns. Right. I'm just not convinced that gun restrictions are going to solve that problem. So kind of the first issue I have with it is 
by having those gun control laws, we're now putting the government in, in the position of deciding who gets a gun, who doesn't get a gun, and all of that. And it's so easy for governments to abuse. And I we agree can see with that. that, you know, historically, so many times when governments have disarmed a population mm-hmm. and then committed horrible abuses against that population. The Soviet Union's a fine example. Mm-hmm. Germany, we're seeing uh, is the same thing, you know, happening around the world today. So I worry about that, first of all. I am a lot more concerned about governmental sponsored violence than I am about private violence. Mm -hmm. And so trying to solve the private violence by disarming a population, I think that in the long run is just worse for everybody. Well, what restrictions do you think should be in place? I mean, obviously, we can't just let anybody... I mean, if somebody has a history of mental health issues, if someone is... You know, you're not going to hand a machete to somebody who's, you know, who's unstable. You're not going to hand any weapon to them um, because that's going to be a dangerous situation. Or if you've got a guy who, you know, say somebody has done something in the past that's been irrational and violent, um, or if you've got somebody who's, you know, suffering from some form of PTSD or anything of that nature, that's going to, you know, be a dangerous situation should you hand them a weapon. say on that is there's a big difference between passing a law saying that somebody who's dangerous shouldn't have a gun mm-hmm. and having that law actually have any real effect. We have a law against murder. Doesn't mean right. there aren't any murders happening. We have laws against drugs. Doesn't right. mean drugs aren't being you know produced and sold and used every day all the time. So just having the law doesn't necessarily solve the problem. Mm-hmm. In fact, we know it doesn't because there's still people who violate it. Yeah. So I would like to see a situation if I, if I could write the law the law would be very narrowly tailored to, to specifically restrict the gun rights of people who have shown they're currently a danger with guns. So if you've tried to murder somebody, that might be a lifetime ban. Sure. For domestic violence, you know, I don't support domestic violence. Obviously, that's not okay. But I don't believe that somebody who punched their girlfriend or boyfriend when they were 18 should be barred from having a gun at 50 years of age. Mm -hmm. But we still have that situation where we, we really, I've had clients like this who as a teenager, they pushed or shoved a significant other, they got a conviction, that was wrong they should not have done it i don't condone it but when they're 50 60 70 years old having just an automatic lifetime ban is just not proportional to the uh to the the situation the same is true we currently ban every convicted felon Mm -hmm. so let's say somebody stole some tools from a pickup truck in 1970 well under the current law unless the governor specifically restores their gun rights they're still banned in 2020. Right. And so those sort of things just don't make any sense. But the real big issue with all those restrictions is that they apply to people who choose to obey the law. Somebody who's dead set on committing a murder isn't going to care about a gun law that makes it a, you know, a rather insignificant felony for them to be in possession of the gun. You know, you murder somebody, you can spend the rest of your life in prison. You possess a gun improperly in Iowa, even if you're convicted and you get the maximum sentence, You'll be out of prison in about a year because you serve 20% of your five-year sentence, so about a year. So that just isn't going to deter the bad people in the first place. But what it does do is deter the good people. I have I have an employee who applied for their, their Illinois concealed carry permit 121 days ago. Mm-hmm. Illinois still has not processed that application. I got clients in the same boat. I have well, clients to, 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 be, to be fair, how do you think COVID has impacted that? I mean, is that a routine thing or is that a 2020 thing because COVID, 
has pu pushed everything behind. So when I was in law school in 2008, I wrote an article about how the Illinois State Police were breaking the law by delaying FOID cards, the okay. cards you need to have in order to have a gun or ammunition in Illinois. So 12 years ago, I wrote that article. People still come back to that page on my website and comment about how their FOID card is being delayed today. Yeah. So it's been happening for 12 years. Okay, just pu just putting some perspective on it because I know this year a lot of things, not only governmental but just in general, have been delayed quite a bit due to the the COVID nineteen. Oh yes, for sure, everything is running slower, right. but there 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 have always been delays in processing of gun matters, especially in Illinois. Iowa's actually been pretty decent, but Illinois especially, they just do not respect the Second Amendment, and it's sad to see the state of Illinois' government treating the population like that. Now, um, in regard to uh, the... Do you think that in in regard to the restrictions, I um you know I think we're on the same page in in a lot of ways in in terms of that in terms of having you know better perspective in regard to things. Now, if I'm a you know I I'm licensed as a teacher, um, and every year I have to renew my license. Um, there are a number of other occupations in which you have to renew your license every year. You have to go through a process of testing, and I mean, even your driver's license. So it's every four years, I believe. Like you have to go in and, and renew your driver's license, go in and take tests, and what have you. Do you think there should be an annual checkup in regard to that, an annual licensure in terms of gun ownership, where people should have to check in? And make sure and renew their license. At which point, circumstances can change. Maybe somebody you know has committed a violent crime or something in the last year. Maybe somebody you know some circumstances have changed or whatever in the past year that can be that can be looked at at that point. Or as you said, conversely, perhaps somebody's reached a certain point, like maybe 20 years on from the time they were a teenager when they have committed a crime and they've served their time for it and they. Some time and perspective has passed, and um, you know they're able to renew that. Uh, how, what are your feelings in regard to that? In regard to annual licensure, or you know some sort of periodic, whether it's not every year, every other year, or something of that nature, just to check in to make sure that those restrictions are there, to make sure that you know that monitoring is there, so that people can safely have firearms and I, I have no problem with people safely and responsibly having firearms my concern is as with most people is people irresponsibly having them or you know not safely having them well i would certainly uh, oppose that i don't see how it accomplishes anything as it stands right now, let's say somebody in Iowa or Illinois gets convicted of a uh, of a crime that disqualifies them. Law enforcement is notified. Permits to carry can be revoked. Foreign okay. cards can be revoked. So there's no need to impose the burden on millions of law-abiding people to check in every year. That's time taken off of work. It's a fee. It's a chance for somebody to forget about it, to miss it, and then suddenly be breaking the law because mm -hmm. they're carrying a gun or having a gun at home without you know having gotten a permission slip from the government. It deters the exercise of that right, too. Anytime that requirements and conditions are put upon a right, it makes it harder for people to exercise it, particularly people who are just barely getting by in terms of how much free time they have, how much money they have, all of that. 
and so you will take away rights from from good law-abiding people whenever you make the right harder. And I think that we, we all, we're all familiar with that sort of argument. People who oppose abortion rights try to sure. make it harder to get an abortion. They impose more restrictions. And the people who support abortion rights cry fall and say, wait a second, why is it this abortion clinic needs to be able to withstand a hurricane when the medical building next to it doesn't? Why are you making it so much harder? And that those sort of things apply just as much to the, to the Second Amendment. We've seen that before with voting, where, you know, poll taxes and things like that that made it harder to vote have been struck down as unconstitutional. Shall not be infringed is pretty clear language. And so anything that infringes the Second Amendment is, I believe, wrongful. It's something we should all avoid. And it's not like it's even going to work anyway. Criminals who unlawfully possess guns and commit crimes with them, they're not going to submit to annual licensing. Mm-hmm. What, so what restrictions do you believe should be put in place? Say you are, uh, you know, your governor and you are in charge of, you know, putting the, uh, a, a, the parameters in place for people to have safe and responsible gun ownership. Um, what are some of the things that you believe should be there? Um, also, another question I wanted to ask is what, from a legal standpoint, what responsibility should people have for making sure that their guns are in a safe place and aren't stolen? Should they be held liable if their weapons are used in a crime? And you can you wrap that into the, any parameters you would put into place in regard to these, uh, right? Oh, certainly. So, if if I could be governor for a day and you know make those kinds of decisions, I would start out by getting rid of any restrictions that I could uh, that are you know not necessary. And so, what's really necessary at a minimum, I would say, would be restrictions on possession of devices that don't have any sort of defensive purpose. So I, I don't think that everyone should have, um, you know, artillery shells and things sure. like that. There just is not a legitimate self-defense purpose for a piece I of agree. artillery that could level a building five blocks away. I agree. But when it comes to guns in general, I would make guns available just like any other object. You can go to the hardware store and buy a submachine gun, and you can buy a can of paint while you're there, and you can buy some plywood. Mm-hmm. And I would have all of that sold the same way. And I don't see any problem with that. I've given a lot of thought to that over the years. I fielded all the counter arguments where people are, are worried about those kind of things. But the reality is people should be able to have guns that are good for self-defense, so that includes all the standard guns we have now as well as machine guns. Now, why would somebody need a machine gun short of a zombie apocalypse? Well, in a self-defense situation, if somebody was breaking down my door, let's say that five or six rather unpleasant people are forcing their way into my house late at night, sure. I, I can tell you I would be better off with a submachine gun for that defensive purpose. If submachine guns didn't have a, a purpose in that role, then we wouldn't see the police with them. You know, I have handled plenty of uh, criminal defense cases here in the Quad Cities where a local police department is raiding someone's house looking for marijuana. Mm-hmm. And I had one case in particular where they came in with five MP, MP5 submachine guns in the, in the hands of the cops. They didn't fire any shots, but they had them there for their protection. Right. So 
obviously those those firearms have a, uh, a purpose in the minds of the police. So I, I think they uh, they're not wrong on that. Right. Now, how do you, how do your views align with members of law enforcement? Because I notice a lot of, I mean, I know a lot of law enforcement officials, and um, uh, I mean, I have a couple of cops right here in my neighborhood, and they're very, you know, they're pro Second Amendment as well, um, and they kind of, you know, have the same sort of ideas that you know, bad people are going to have guns, good people should have the rights to to have them as well. Um, in your experience talking to members of law enforcement, how have you felt their ideas have aligned with yours or uh, been contrary to yours? Oh, yeah. I think that uh, most of the law enforcement officers who I've spoken with over the years, uh, they tend to be rather pro-Second Amendment. Uh, not necessarily as pro as me. I think that I am uh, I'm more pro-Second Amendment than most people, particularly in my support of private ownership of machine guns and things like that. But I think most cops would agree that people should have guns. Um, what about the... the the contrary the argument that um, someone should not have access to um, a machine gun or something like that that that's uh, that goes beyond you know into the automatic realm um, that somebody can utilize that percentages now let's look at you know percentage wise how often do you have a lot of people come five six people coming into your home and so looking at it from a state from a standpoint of um negative adverse use of this weapon versus positive use of this weapon if there's more negative percentage use of the weapon should the weapon then be banned or addressed in that regard or, or be harder for people to get well, I don't. Looking at the text of the Second Amendment, I don't see uh, anything in there that talks about percentages or negative or positive. I just see "shall not be infringed," and so from a constitutional perspective, that's kind of where my analysis ends. Right. "Shall not be infringed" is pretty clear language. But you know, even leaving that aside, I don't believe that some other person's misuse of a tool should ban my ability to exercise my right to have that tool. Sure. There, are, there are people who speed and drive recklessly in sports cars. Does that mean that right. my speedometer should be capped at 55? Right. You know, we have the same sort of reasoning for, uh, uh, for freedom of speech. A lot more people die every year because of words, because of uh, hate that's fomented online and, mm -hmm. in, and in print lies that are told about people just about every time something bad is happening to someone other than just you know a random robbery there are words involved and we can see that you know across human history whether it's you know people being burned at the state at the stake because they were alleged to be witches whether it is you know racially motivated violence today fomented by people you know pushing hate words can can kill way more than guns can but you don't see us putting restrictions on words like that the first amendment right to free speech the second amendment and right to keep and bear arms. Those are two co-equal rights under our Bill of Rights, and we should treat them equally. Well, let's also look, 
okay, when the Second Amendment was written, when the Constitution was written, it was a very different country. Obviously, there was, um, you know, far more places that were unsettled. There were far there was far more need in regard to self defense, not just in terms of humans, but in terms of wildlife. If you're going out and there's bears and mountain lions and everything else. You know, you've got to defend yourself if you're going out into the midst of the wilderness to settle. Also, we were coming out of a war in which, and in, uh, we're coming out of a situation in which we were occupied by the British, and the British were, were um, you know, um, acting in tyrannical ways towards our population and wanted to unarm our population because they they did not want to allow us to rebel against what they were doing, which was against our basic rights. Things have changed considerably since that time. We don't, we're not occupied by the British. We don't, you know, have to worry about, uh, you know, going out and settling and shooting mountain lions and grizzly bears and things of that nature. How do you think the Second Amendment, if you do think it should be changed at all, or you do think it should be reinterpreted at all, how do you think that that interpretation and looking at the different times, um, you know, should fall into any sort of arguments or uh, restrictions in terms of it? I don't see uh, any merit to that idea at all. Uh, the Second Amendment has nothing to do with hunting. Hunting just happens to be one of the many lawful purposes for which a person can possess firearms. Sure. I have nothing against hunting, but it's not anything I particularly care about either. I've never been hunting. I can't say I have any plans to go. I'm not really a huge outdoors kind of person. <laughs> but when it comes to, uh, to why we have the Second Amendment, that's timeless. It is all about security. Security against tyranny. Security you know, against crime. It is there for, for self-defense. It's there for defense of the nation. And no amount of time passing is going to change that because the need for defense is a function of human nature. Mm. And until there's some dramatic change in human nature so that people are no longer a threat to each other, I don't see how the Second Amendment is not uh, perfectly fit to the, uh, to the times here. But even if it weren't, even if times had changed in a meaningful way, which again I don't concede, the process then is to amend the Constitution. And absent amending it, we can't just decide we're going to ignore that part anymore. The Constitution has meaning, and that meaning is something that is not just uh, subject to being ignored suddenly because, you know, some portion of the population wishes it was otherwise. Now, what about what about the argument that um, the government? I know a lot of people, you know, have guns for self defense, but people who have tend to have machine guns, tend to have rather large arsenals. Um, a lot of them have the idea that they are protecting themselves against government tyranny or potential government tyranny. There's also an argument to be made that no matter how many guns you stockpile, the government is always going to have more and more sophisticated weapons. Um, what do you say to people who would make that argument? Well, I think they're, they're helping me make my argument that private ownership of machine guns is a good idea. If they're saying that the Second Amendment can't protect us against a tyrannical government because the government has better guns, that sounds like the civilians need better guns, too. <laughs> but even leaving that aside, <laughs> I think that um, there are a lot of insurgents in you know, Iraq, Afghanistan, mm -hmm. and Vietnam who can all tell you that resisting the might of the federal government works worked well for them. And so it is uh, the idea that a uh, 
that a tyrannical government can control a population that doesn't wish to be controlled. I think that uh, the last 70 years of history have shown it's the exact opposite. That even when underarmed, even when ill-equipped, even when poorly educated, people can and do resist. Well, it's it's interesting you bring up Iraq and Vietnam, which are two, um, which kind of bring us into one of the next questions I was going to ask you. Now, you went back 70 years. Let's go back 100, 120 years to the point when Iraq and Vietnam were not, well, Iraq wasn't called Iraq. Um, It was the Ottoman Empire, and it was a number of other uh, provinces, and um it was colonialized. Same thing with Vietnam. They were both uh, colonies um, for, that were controlled by Europe. And they wanted to claim their independence the same way America had claimed their independence from a European power. And it was the turmoil in regard to that in, that independence or that uh, attempt to get independence um, that was being blocked by European powers and in some ways American businesses and European businesses who wanted to exploit the resources of that area that led people to rebel and led people to uh, foment insurgencies. Um, So ultimately it was an economic reason for people turning to unorthodox and some might say criminal um, and violent means to do so. Let's look at some of the reasons why people uh, utilize guns in crime. It's often, t- if you're comfortable, if you uh, you know have a, a comfortable lifestyle, you have a place to live, you have food in your refrigerator, you you know are well off, at least to that extent. Um, the chances of you being involved in a violent crime or any sort of crime are fairly slim. Uh, whereas a lot of people who are committing these crimes are of lower income status. They're struggling. They're attempting to get ahead. I'm not defending the fact that they're utilizing criminal means and utilizing violent means to do so. But what I am saying is that if the people were better off, if the people were allowed better avenues to improve themselves and not find themselves into that situation, we may be able to ameliorate the levels of violent crime and the levels of violence out there. Um, what do you, how do you think societally um, we can address that and perhaps staunch the, 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 the flow of violent crime, the level of violent crime, particularly in places like Chicago, in which most of the crime takes place in economically depressed neighborhoods? issues and I think that it is you know, a lot of the crime is a result of systematic racism that has existed for decades and decades situations where people have lacked opportunity mm-hmm. and as a result of that they end up stuck in that cycle of poverty and criminality mm-hmm. and you know I, I'm sure that if I had been born you know somewhere uh, less advantageous and my parents had been uneducated people who had criminal records as long as my arm, I would not be sitting here as a lawyer today. Mm -hmm. Some people do manage to make it out of those bad situations, but statistically it just doesn't tend to work out that well and that's not a, you know, a character fault or flaw in in those people. So I, my heart goes out for them. I think we do need to define problems and find solutions to those problems. But none of that changes my analysis on how self-defense should work. My hope is to see a lot of those societal structural problems fixed, and I try to do my part on that. 
but none of that changes the way I would handle it if somebody was trying to harm me, harm my family. In either case, I'm just going to try to, uh, you know, use guns in self-defense if, if that need arises. Can you see where there, where the glamorization of gun culture could be a toxin that when introduced to that situation of economic disadvantage can lead to violence? You know, I've heard those arguments before. I, I remember in particular the movie uh, Wanted came out, I want to say maybe 10 or 15 years ago. I think it had Angelina Jolie in it. And I think in the UK they actually banned some of the posters for that movie saying that it glamorized uh, gun violence and so on. Uh, obviously that didn't happen here because we have a much stronger protected freedom of speech. Right. But I never did buy those arguments then or now. I think that... Uh, Humans are going to do what they're going to do. There are complex problems that need to be solved, but I really doubt that people appreciating gun rights or even you know movie billboards that make it seem glamorous are actually what cause violence or anything of, of that sort. Yeah. I think there's uh, there's lots of reasons why violence occurs. I think that it is something where economics plays a part of it. Mm -hmm. People having psychological issues that go unaddressed form a part of it. You know, unresolved anger issues certainly don't help. But I, I don't blame guns or glamorizing guns for that. Otherwise, we'd expect to see similar issues among people. You know, imagine uh, if we were to look at the upper middle class uh, portion of the population that have guns, and we don't see similar issues happening there. Right. So I just I can't say blaming the guns makes sense to me. Yeah, I I, I find that. I find that argument very murky. I know a lot of people do make it, um, but I, I'm the same way where, you know, I look at, uh, I don't go and watch a Quentin Tarantino movie in which there is plenty of violence and go out and say, you know what, I want to go out and shoot someone. Um, you know, I, I just, but, but I guess, you know, in looking at this issue and looking at so many issues like it, I tend to think that, and this goes back to my initial argument you know um the hypothetical of you, four friends at a table all of whom are of sane mind uh and you, you put a gun on the table regardless of whether it's a pistol or a machine gun they're not going to do anything uh, wrong with it they're not going to do you know go shoot up a cafe or something like that um and i look at a lot of these shootings and a lot of the gun violence and really a lot of the problems in this country and a lot of it comes down to uh, power. Uh, power in and of itself is a neutral, the same way a gun in and of itself is a neutral. But the thing is, is when you have an unbalance of power and people feel powerless, they seek out something to um, level out that unbalance of power. And a gun is a very quick means to an end in regard to leveling that out. And you see that in terms of school shootings. There are there are very few times when the school shooting takes place and it's the popular kid in school or it's the kid who's well adjusted or the kid who's on the you know um, you know on a, a number of extracurriculars. It's usually the kid who's a loner, who's been bullied, who's been picked on. And again, I'm not justifying this. I'm merely looking at it from you know an analytical perspective. Uh, and so. When, when they find themselves in this situation where they feel powerless, they seek out some form of power to make themselves feel better or to, to balance that out in their own minds. 
It's the same way within economically disadvantaged areas. They feel there's a lack of power there. There's a lack of, of, um, of an ability to you know accomplish the things that, that, that they want to accomplish. And um, that lack of power leads to an attempt to get some of that power, whether it's something as, as, nece- as necessary as you need to eat, you need to have money to, to survive, or um, they feel completely downtrodden and want to gain some semblance of self-esteem or some semblance of respect. Uh, people seek out that very quick means of power, and a gun is a very quick means of power. How do we address that issue? Um, again, it's, a, it's an extremely complex issue, and it goes across uh, social uh, social classes, strata. It goes across uh, you know racial barriers. Um, obviously, the, mo- the vast majority of school shooters are white males. Um, the vast majority of lone shooters are white males. Um, whereas a lot of the urban crime, um, the majority of it is by people of color. But they both, they both have that thing in common where there's a power disparity there. And in order to bridge that gap, they seek out something of that nature. And a gun is a very easy way for that bridge that, uh, that gap to be bridged in terms of gaining some sort of power. How do we ameliorate that? How do we combat that in society? Well, that's a good question. And if, if I had the answer, I feel like I would deserve a Nobel Peace Prize <laughs> for it. If you come up with that answer, you know, I suspect you'll be in the running for next year's Nobel Peace Prize mm-hmm. as well. I would say that whatever the solution is, it can't focus on the object. Mm-hmm. Because when people want to hurt other people because of that power disparity, they're going to use whatever tool they think they can use most effectively. Sure. And it almost never is a gun. You look at the 9-11 terrorist attacks. That is, I say, a prime example of a power disparity and people choosing to use violence to try to strike back when they don't have the, uh, you know, the other means available. Mm-hmm. The terrorists who committed that the, the atrocities on 9/11, they didn't have cruise missiles, they didn't have bombers, sure. but they did have box cutters and they hijacked some planes and sure, they killed sure. nearly 3,000 people. And that is, uh, you know, that's one example. We can look at the Oklahoma City bombing. So Timothy McVeigh there, he didn't have, you know, cruise missiles and bombers, but he felt the disparity and he felt like doing something about it. And then he committed mass murder terribly. Right. We can even look at the, uh, the, the attack in uh, France involving a truck where a couple of terrorists drove a truck through a crowd. And in doing so, they killed more people just by running them over with a truck than have died in any mass shooting in U.S. history. So when trucks that you can go rent a truck and drive it through a crowd and kill more people than have ever been killed in any mass U.S. shooting, that tells you the problem is not the gun. The problem is the minds of people and that disparity in power and how the how they feel alienated by mm-hmm. it. And so the solution can't possibly be to focus on the object that some of them use, especially when other such mass killers use even more effective objects like bombs and airplanes and trucks. Sure, sure. I, I agree with you. I, again, I think... You know, any sane person, any person who's of reasonable mind, it's not the gun. It, it The gun is a neutral. The gun is a tool. Um, it's the person that needs to fire the gun. But the, the question is, how do we address the person and the, the problems that the, pe- the person has or people have that lead them to 
want to shoot other people that lead them to these violent acts. Um, one of the another big argument that has been made in particularly in regard to folks you know who are pro Second Amendment but want to um, address this is that there needs to be more uh, resources and needs to be um, you know more efforts put forth in regard to mental health in this country and the fact that. People, you know, there is a mental health crisis in this country. Every single one of these mass shooters has had some sort of mental health issue. I don't think you wouldn't have a mental health issue if you went and, you know, did a mass shooting. Um, and so, I, in looking at it, and looking at the vast majority of violent crime, if you take out crimes of passion and things of that nature, um, and even within that realm, a lot of it comes down to mental health and economic disparity. Two huge, huge issues in this country. How do how do we address those issues to make those things better and to allow for um, you know, like you said, law-abiding people to be able to exercise their Second Amendment rights and to cut down on the number of criminal acts, the number of violent acts um, due to people who are unbalanced. The, uh, the magic answer. I think that there's certainly some stuff we should be doing that's kind of obvious. Uh, you know, one of the things that I care deeply about is putting a stop to police brutality and racism. Sure. And We're going to get that to that issue. next, actually. <laughs> Go ahead. Oh, yeah. Yeah, fixing that issue is certainly going to uh, is going to help. It's going to make people more willing to cooperate with the police to solve crimes. You know, all of that. I think mental health is a huge part of it as well. It's uh, it really is sad the amount of resources that our country is willing to spend on incarcerating people, mm-hmm. but not being willing to spend those resources to prevent yes. the yes. criminality yes. and the incarceration. You know, I I tend to lean libertarian politically here. I'm not saying that I like government spending generally or that I want to see, you know, us dipping into the coffers to go spend a whole bunch of money on social programs. But I would much rather see that money spent on social programs than see it spent on our prison system. And we're already spending it on prison. So let's try to actually fix problems preemptively rather than just wait for them to come up. I agree. I think that um, all too often... um government money is misspent and it is misspent on uh, reaction rather than being proactive um, in regard to looking at a, at issues and problems and also I just think it's financially irresponsible that the government is often financially irresponsible in terms of their spending and we could cut taxes considerably if they were much, much more financially responsible in terms of the way that they look at things um, so Let's get on to that. The next subject, which I had on my list, is obviously a huge one at this point. Police brutality, uh, racism, systematic racism uh, in regard to this. Um, There's been arguments, and I just watched a debate um, between uh, two folks who were talking about, okay, is this... Do you feel that this that the, the police brutality issue is systematically racist, or do you think it is systematically classist in terms of, of the way that it's going? Certainly, there is absolutely no denying the fact that there are a lot of racist people in this country. I think that we've, especially over the last four years, 
certainly seen a rise in, uh, I don't think there's necessarily a rise in the number of people who are racist, but a number of people who are emboldened to come right out and, and openly be racist and make racist statements and act in such ways. Um, what do you feel is, is the, the primary issue here in regard to it, and, and how do we how do we solve this problem? How do we get around it? Um, obviously, there, there has to be, there's a need for some sort of law enforcement. There's a, lead, a need for, um, for, the, for the police. How is this addressed in a way that, you know, we can quickly weed out the people? If somebody is, you know, written up or if somebody has a history of being you know making these 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 racist acts if they have a history of being you know biased towards a specific group um how do we get them out of the system out of the police system um is this also a case of being proactive where police officers should have to go through much more comprehensive training and mental health screening before they they give their weapons and get into the police force um what are your thoughts in regard to this Oh, yeah, there's, uh, I guess, kind of the first thing, is there a problem with racism in policing? Yes. Is there a problem with classism in policing? Yes. Mm -hmm. The answer to both of those is independently yes. And we can see that statistically. I've experienced it anecdotally. Mm -hmm. My first memory of the police growing up was a police officer falsely accusing my parents of shoplifting. Mm -hmm. They weren't shoplifting. My parents were were well-to-do people. They did not steal anything. you know, I would say that my father was, uh, you know, more successful at that point in his life than I am at this point in my life. So he certainly wasn't shoplifting anything. The baby carrier they were accused of shoplifting wasn't even carried by that store, so it was an impossibility. Mm-hmm. But that police officer treated them like animals in front of me, and I will remember that for the rest of my life. Mm-hmm. And so there is a racism issue. It's a classism issue. The statistics show it. The anecdotes show it. I see it in my day-to-day life as an attorney, just the difference in how how my black and brown clients are treated by the judicial system, by the police, by the juries. So there's a problem throughout. As far as what we do to fix it, I think the first thing is recognizing that there is a problem. Because some people want to stick their heads in the sand and act like there isn't. And I've seen that at at some protests. We've had some, uh, I've helped organize some protests here in the Quad Cities. We've had some counter-protesters come out. And I've told them, you know, they're saying there's no problem with police brutality and racism in the Quad Cities. I say, yes, there is. Mm -hmm. Pull out your phone. I will give you the web address where you can look up this Quad City Times article. Let's let's talk through this. Let's look at it. You know, let's look at how this, this news article talks about the federal court decision that happened in July where the Davenport cop was found to have engaged in brutality, but the, the lawsuit was dismissed because of qualified immunity. And not once has, has any of those people actually chosen to pull their phone out and read the article. They just want to say, nope, there's no problem. And I'm literally putting the evidence in front of them right there on their own phone. They're just not interested. Right. So we got we got to find the problem, identify it, recognize that it's real. As far as concrete solutions, Part of it is we need to get rid of qualified immunity. That's that legal doctrine that essentially gives the cops a get-out-of-jail-free card. They're able to avoid liability unless you can point out a court case that essentially has the exact same facts and shows the cop was held liable in that case. You know, qualified immunity is such a uh, it's such a shield against uh, you know justice 
But uh, one example that I've, I've used a few times, there was a motorist who was driving down the road, gets pulled over for a traffic stop. The cop decides to spray the motorist in the face with pepper spray for no good reason, just just to be sadistic. Right. The motorist sues, and the lawsuit is dismissed because of qualified immunity because the motorist was unable to point to the right not to be pepper sprayed in the face as a clearly established existing right that the court had already recognized. The closest case the motorist could find was one where a prison inmate, uh, you know, had the right not to be pepper sprayed in the face arbitrarily, but because that person was a prison inmate and not a regular motorist, the lawsuit failed. So we've got to get rid of qualified immunity. That's going to go a huge way because the legal system can then step in and clean it up. Sure. What do you think in regard to, um, I mean, I agree, I agree with you. I'm going by this debate that I watched. That it was between two African American gentlemen who were on both sides of the political spectrum, and and they both, one was arguing, was actually arguing. Well, I think it's more of a classist thing than it is a racist thing, and he pulled out data, and then the other guy said, "Well, no, this is a racist thing," and and I agree. I think it is. I mean, obviously, it's a racist thing when people are saying racist epithets, or if there's a, you know, you have video. There's it's really tough to argue with video when people are, um, you have a. Uh, uh, the what the heck's the guy's name? Kyle Rittenhouse, who just you know, white kid who walks right in front of the cops and he's carrying a machine gun and he's fine. And then you've got you know other you know African American folks who are you know standing around or doing whatever or just protesting and they're treated far differently in regard to the situation. Um, am I saying that all cops are racist? No, I'm not because that any, anybody who says that all members of a group, I think, um, is, is operating from a fallacy because you can't say that every member of a group is a certain way. Um, but, uh, but yeah, obviously there are a lot of, you know, there are bad people out there within the ranks of law enforcement and that needs to be cleaned up and it needs to be addressed. Um, you mentioned taking away qualified immunity, which I agree with. Um, looking at it from a proactive perspective, how do we, I think that there should be a far longer training period and much more stringent requirements in order to get into the police force. Uh, right now, I don't think that that addresses that. And you've got too many people who maybe, you know, do harbor, you know, they have racist backgrounds, they harbor racist thoughts, or they maybe are not, you know, mentally capable of handling the high stress nature of police work. And it would, we would go a longer way in regard to weeding those people out if it were a longer and more stringent process of getting into the police force. How do you feel in regard to that and what um, do you think would be a suitable amount of time and what suitable actions do you think should be taken um, to try to, to weed out these people before they get there, before they get into, into the force? Oh, yes, and that is a huge part of it. American law enforcement gets a lot less training than law enforcement from other countries, and we can see those results. There's article after article online showing how a lot of the police in Europe, 
get years and years of training, and the European police engage in very little brutality. They're much better at de-escalation, right. whereas you see the American police forces, a lot of times you'll go spend six or eight weeks at a police academy, and then they give you a gun and a badge, and you're out on the street enforcing the law, and the result is exactly what we see you know, nowadays with, with excessive brutality. Right. So that is something that certainly needs to change. I would hope that police officers could all have a degree in social work. They could be trained in de-escalation. I think that martial arts training would be especially a good idea, particularly grappling. I think uh, Brazilian jiu-jitsu is an excellent idea. Mm-hmm. I say that both as somebody who just enjoys doing Brazilian jiu-jitsu, but also I see it that uh, when a person has more tools in their tool bag, they're more likely to use those other tools. They're less likely to think they need to suddenly uh, shoot. You know, a police officer who is confident in their grappling abilities is probably not as likely to fire unnecessarily at a uh, at a person than a police officer who is not confident in their grappling abilities and thinks that uh, you know getting their gun out is the only thing separating them from from life and death. Mm-hmm. Um, let's talk a little bit about um, the open carry rally that you're going to be having this weekend in front of Davenport City Hall. Uh, Davenport City Hall, 226 West 4th Street in Davenport. The rally is going on at 4 p.m. on Saturday, October 3rd. What um, What are the reasons, what's the impetus behind this? And uh, Give me your perspective in regard to how you think um, these issues are being handled in the Quad Cities. We, uh, we are having our open carry rally. It's in support of gun rights and all of our civil rights. You know, my, uh, my goal there is to you know, have a situation where we can come together, support, show our support for those rights. We also, you know, one of the, the big goals was not leaving the situation where it was left with the last open carry rally in Davenport. So back in August, a person whose Facebook page had all sorts of Confederate imagery and hate-filled memes, talks about wanting to, you know, harm protesters, just a very, very hate-filled uh, person. Mm-hmm. You know, he organized an open carry rally in Davenport, and at that rally, some of the attendees, you know, made hateful statements. Just really not uh, not a fair representation of our community here, and so our goal is to have an open carry rally that doesn't have you know Confederate imagery, hate, everything like that. I think it's good just to uh, to help people who might be on the fence about gun ownership, who who are only familiar with news footage of people waving Confederate flags and holding guns, to say, oh, wait a second, these people support civil rights, and they got just as many guns, too. So I think that's a good thing. I also think there's some deterrence value. A lot of the, uh, the kind of things I've seen online on Facebook, you see these, uh, you know, racist people making statements about violence in the future, and they seem to think they have a monopoly on firearms, and they don't. Mm-hmm. And the sooner that they realize they don't have a monopoly on firearms, that people who aren't full of racism and hate are just as well armed, hopefully things will uh, will stay nice and calm and violence will be avoided. But I see those people fantasizing online about pulling liberals out of cars and shooting people and things like that. It's, it's a problem. It's a danger. And hopefully seeing that the people who they're considering targeting aren't soft targets may make them, you know, kind of rethink their violent, uh, you know, thoughts. Well, and that goes back to, I mean, those people are mentally ill, obviously. Um, I mean, I think that, uh, you know, anyone who would be fantasizing about doing something of that nature is mentally ill. And how, you know, 
I know both of us are both very, you know, fervent free speech advocates. Um, but free speech, I don't think it should be constrained, but it can be utilized. Um, if you have an open forum of free speech, people can and will sometimes reveal their intentions. Uh, do you think that posts of that nature could and should be used against someone in regard to uh, continuing their certification for firearms? If someone is making a, and I mean, if you look at, okay, let's look at somebody like Dylan Roof or look at any of the other school shooters, there was typically a, a, a history, there were signs, uh, precursors to their violent acts. They often made posts that were, you know, uh, alluding to them. Um, how much do you think that there there should be um, a utilization of social media posts, things of that nature, to uh, act as a, uh, you know, a proactive means of preventing future violence in terms of, or, or just, you know, being able to uh, refuse someone the ability to have a firearm if they're going online and, and making these statements. If somebody's posting racist memes saying that they're going to go out and kill a person of color, or they're going to go out and kill liberal, or they're going to go out and kill anybody, really, um, you know, how, how should that be utilized in terms of, you know, uh, warning and prevention uh, to try and prevent future violent acts? Yeah, and that's something where I get the desire to prevent. I certainly don't think that sort of violent rhetoric is ever acceptable. You know, I like, I like guns quite a bit, both just because they're enjoyable, but mainly for the self-defense purpose. Mm -hmm. I, I see the gun safety as such an important thing. You know, for this rally that's coming up, I've provided for anybody who wants it online who sees it, you know, a free Iowa permit to carry weapons online class that gets them training that talks about gun safety, that talks about how you should not use a gun against another human unless you absolutely need to. I believe in that stuff, and that's why I, I try to do my best to get that training out to people for free. So I, I, I firmly see you know, I, I see where you're coming from about wanting to, to fix that problem. I'm just also reluctant to empower the government to look at a person's words and then decide whether that person can exercise a fundamental right. right. It just, it, I worry about governmental abuse of that power. Yes. If we had a, you know, a perfectly fair and reasonable governmental body doing that, that would be one thing. But I don't think we have that, especially not anymore. You know, an easy example of that is Trump designating uh, Antifa as a terrorist sure, organization. Exactly, yeah. You know, even, even the DHS, uh, I think it was the DHS director or someone else high up at DHS or FBI was talking about how, no, it's an ideology, not yeah, an organization. Right. And so the KKK is not designated as a terrorist organization. Antifa is. And that sort of situation where the government can make those determinations, even when they fly in the face of logic and reason and do it for political reasons, it's just so easy to abuse. And so I worry more about that abuse by the government than I do about bad acts by individual citizens. So in general, and here, I would say no, don't empower the government to do more to constrain our rights, because we're all going to be worse off in the long run if we do that. What do you think about smart guns? What do you think about guns that are only enabled by a person's fingerprints or something of that nature? Um, and, you know, that way would allow the person who, who bought the gun, who was registered for the gun, whose fingerprints were on it, to use it. Um, but if it was stolen, then it would be useless. How do you, what do you feel about that? I think those 
those are uh, terrible ideas, at least uh, <laughs> based upon modern technology. And I say that as somebody who has a bachelor's degree in computer science. Yeah. It is uh, very difficult to make a combination of hardware and software that would reliably and affordably accomplish those objectives. I'll say it's probably downright impossible. Even if you add $500 to the cost of a gun, which could mean doubling or tripling the cost of a lot of guns, mm-hmm. and thereby pricing poorer people out of the ability to defend themselves, even then, I see so many ways for the technology to fail in a way that leaves the owner disadvantaged. I see so many ways that a criminal could bypass the technology anyway. Yeah. You know, Ultimately, a gun is a, is a rather simple mechanical tool. You can have the smartest computer controlling it, but what's to stop me with a screwdriver and a chisel from taking that you know, technology off and installing something that bypasses it? That's pretty easy to do. So I don't see the technology going anywhere to actually solve the real problems. I do see it as just another means of making it harder to exercise right under the guise of safety. It really is, you know, to use the abortion clinic example, it's equivalent to those attempts to make abortions harder for women to get by making restrictions on the clinics, on the doctors that essentially push them out of the uh, the ability to uh, to participate in the market. Um. Yeah, going totally off, totally off on a tangent. Um, it reminds me of Minority Report. I don't know if you ever seen that movie with Tom Cruise. Oh yeah. Um, where we were talking about that. What you know, it is true. There is a political bias, and the government can use political bias in regard to seeing someone's social media posts and denying them their basic constitutional rights due to their bias. What if there was an AI that was there to read those things and then could turn off those smart weapons or, or you know, confine people otherwise if they, you know, monitored their violent speech? But then again, there are ways to manipulate that as well. Um, Let's talk about the martial arts issue, which I also think is something that is it's really fascinating, that is that is really under um, underreported and, and not understood very well, and perhaps it's because there aren't a lot of people uh, who have taken martial arts seriously who are within the media. Um, I took uh, 12 years of training. I trained in karate and trained in Muay Thai kickboxing. I know you have uh, trained in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, and I'm, I'm not sure of any of your other martial arts training, but I know you also trained extensively. Um, and, you know, you and I both know um, it's the same thing you mentioned with the firearm is that you use it as self-defense. You know, a good teacher uh, is going to teach you to utilize martial arts in self-defense and a defensive stance. They're not going to tell you to go out and just kick someone's ass. They're going to tell you if you need to use it, you have it. And in, in, in having been trained that way, there's a certain confidence in regard to people who have been trained in that you don't feel the need to have that bravado or bluster or to go out looking for something. Um, And I think that in some ways that does, that leads to a certain level of confidence and and, um, calm in terms of pressure situations. We both talked about um, the need for police, I think, to have greater martial arts training to allow them that sense of calm that if they're in a situation where it's a grappling situation or a hand-to-hand combat situation or something of that nature, you can de-escalate it by utilizing martial arts as opposed to using a weapon. How do you think that that could be something that could be utilized to perhaps... um, 
change people's mindsets in terms of utilizing uh, any weaponry as self-defense or um, allowing people to have a better uh, feel for their, their own uh, empowerment um, in avoiding conflicts of this nature that might be escalated. really is it you hit the nail on the head there some people are just too quick to see their guns or their fists or their their legs as the, the solution to a problem i see those as the last resort right. i've never had to use my gun in self-defense and i hope to spend the entire rest of my life never needing to use a gun in self-defense it is not a first resort it is literally the last resort and just because something may be legally justifiable doesn't mean it, it's morally justifiable yeah I had a situation at my office where some individuals were loitering in the parking lot. We've had some problems with people loitering there and actually committing crimes in our parking lot across from an apartment building. Sometimes they get banned from the apartment building complex and then they come over to our parking lot across the street. So I nicely asked them to leave. They, you know, they, they said they were going to, they didn't. I nicely asked them again. They refused, start cussing me out. One of them threatened to run me over with their car and started, you know, put their car in drive and moved it in my direction. Now I'm carrying my pistol, of course, like I, like I always am at my office. But I didn't pull my pistol out. I didn't shoot at them. I didn't threaten to shoot them. I recognized that the turning radius of their SUV was such that they couldn't hit me right then. And if I took several steps backward, I'm not going to be in danger. So that's what I did because there was no need to use force against someone, even though I think from a legal perspective, I could have talked about how I feared for my safety and all of that. But I don't want to shoot anyone. I don't want to hurt anyone. And I think that's what people need to, we should all be taking that approach that violence is a last resort and martial arts i think is great because it calms people down yeah it does. I've, um, i mainly do grappling so i've gotten quite comfortable with being in a situation where somebody else is compressing my diaphragm and i'm kind of trapped there i got comfortable with being uncomfortable as they say mm -hmm. so i think i'm not i'm not going to panic under those situations in the future i can think rationally i can solve problems from the, uh, the kickboxing you've done, you know, I haven't done a ton of uh, striking. I'm mainly a grappler, but I've done some kickboxing and some krav. And I, you know, from the, just from what little I've done there, you know, way less than my jujitsu, I'm a lot more comfortable with being punched right now and being mm -hmm. kicked and staying calm. And I think if police officers had that training, they would be less likely to, you know, just panic and start shooting, even in cases where no one has done anything to the police officer. Just being cooler, you know, might save a lot of lives. I agree. I agree. Um, I think we've we've touched upon most of the subjects. Is there anything we have missed that you feel is integral for us to discuss? I want to. I'd like to have you on the show again to discuss other issues as well. But I think we kind of. This has been such a huge issue right now, the Second Amendment, in so many ways because it touches upon so many aspects of our society. Like you mentioned, there's been so much racial violence. There's been so much, um, you know, uh, violence threatened online. There's been so many uh, things in, in which this is such a vital topic. Uh, once the pandemic hit, gun sales spiked. Gun sales are continuing to go up due to the fact that people just feel insecure in regard to the way the country, where, where the country is right now, um, in regard to the way the world is right now. Um, any anything else that you you feel we should talk about or that you feel is really important to mention in terms of any of these issues or where we're at right now as a society and as a country? 
just to touch on that that last point, I do think that it is a uh, situation where people feel uneasy, and that that uneasy feeling is uh, is justified. I don't see it as paranoia or blowing things out of proportion. Mm-hmm. You know, no matter where you sit politically, just looking at the presidential debate, you know, to have a refusal to condemn white supremacists yes. and yes. then to talk about the Proud Boys standing by. Yeah, that's ridiculous. I don't know how else to see that other than, you know, an impending catastrophe. Yeah. The very next day, you know, I get the, uh, I have my online Iowa permit to carry weapons uh, class and I post it on Facebook for, you know, all my friends to see, you know, hey, take my class for free. Here's the coupon code. It'll cost you zero dollars. Take the class, get your permit. Now's the time to have a gun. Mm-hmm. And usually on an average day, I might have one or two people doing that. I, had, I think I was up to 13 people doing that the day after the debate. So people are, are seeing that there is a real problem. And so I think it is good to be armed. I think all good people should take the time now to get a gun, get a permit to carry, lawfully, safely exercise that right, become proficient now, because where armed self-defense arises in the future, it's too late at that point to figure it out. Mm-hmm. You need to be ready early on, just like you can't uh, wish for a fire extinguisher to appear right when a fire breaks out. You need to have bought that extinguisher in advance. And so I hope that things are nice and calm and go smoothly. I hope that people recognize that we're all human, that every life is sacred and precious, that we should not uh, have violence. I just don't know if that's how it's going to go, and I, I find that to be ever so concerning. How do you think how do you think we de-escalate this? How, I mean, I, I I share your opinion in regard to... I thought it was absolutely disgusting that Trump could not denounce um, white supremacy. I thought it was completely disgraceful that he, in, in his position, could not make such a simple statement as to denounce um, racism. I thought it was absolutely ridiculous. Uh, one of the things that we've seen over the last few years is an emboldenment of people who have come forward, who have been more emboldened to, to make racist statements, make bigoted statements, you know, exhibit really disturbing uh, behaviors and uh, ideologies. And um, the thing is, though, is even if Joe Biden wins in November, uh, those people aren't going to, there's not going to be a switch that's flipped and all of a sudden those people um, change their attitudes. How do you feel, uh, you know, it's best for, you know, the country to de-escalate those situations, to educate these people, to to try to get people to understand that any sort of racism or bigotry upon such superficial uh, reasons as the color of someone's skin, where they're from, um, you know, their their preferred uh, sexuality, whatever, anything of that nature, is something that should be discarded. That people should be regarded uh, upon the content of their character and the type of people they are and their actions, as opposed to any other. Um, external superficialities that uh, that you know other people may be judging them upon, or mis you know um, misinformation that people are, are judging them on, biases that have been you know passed down through generations that they're judging them on. How how do we change that and de-escalate that and get people on a, on a much better path? You know, I, I wish I had the answer for that because that would surely be worthy of a dozen Nobel Peace Prizes. Right, right. You know, the, the best I, I can think is just 
polite engagement. I try my best to talk with people. Mm -hmm. I try my best to hear them out, let them hear me. I think that the more that people do to communicate in a kind, peaceful way, the better it's going to work. Unfortunately, I have tried my very best with some racist individuals and even in cases where, you know, they can see that I don't fit the stereotype they want to have in their head for a black male, you know, and they can say nice things about me personally, they still just don't seem to, to give up that idea. It's, uh, I think some people just like to feel like they're better than someone else. I think that, uh, I think there's just a lot to it. It's very unfortunate, but it's something that we need to fix. I agree. I agree. Um, Eric, uh, anything else you'd like to talk about that we haven't touched upon? Uh, let's talk. Uh, once again, the open carry rally is going on this Saturday at 4 p.m. in front of Davenport City Hall, 226 West 4th Street, Davenport, 4 o'clock Saturday. If you're interested in checking that out, uh, anything else that um, you'd like to, to mention or talk about that we haven't touched upon? One last thing I would say about the open carry rally on uh, on Saturday, even if you don't want to carry a gun, even if you don't have a gun, if you support civil rights, feel free, come on out, hold up some signs. This is not a... Uh uh, this is not a only gun people can go. Everyone is welcome. It's a nice, friendly, happy environment. We're just asserting our gun rights as we continue to assert our support for civil rights like we've, uh, we've done at various protests against police brutality this summer. So hope to see everybody there. Well, th Eric, thank you so much for uh, being a guest on the show, and I'm looking forward to having you back on as a guest to discuss other issues as well. Thank you. Entirely my pleasure. And once again, thank you for listening into. QC Uncut. My guest was Eric Perrier. And once again, the open carry rally is going on this Saturday at 4 p.m. in front of Davenport City Hall, um, if you're interested in checking that out. Eric's been a great guest, and once again, thank you very much for being on the show. And thank you for listening to QC Uncut, uncut, unedited, uncensored conversation with local newsmakers. I am Sean Leary. Hope you have a great day.